You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. Did you know that art museums have in-house scientists? They do. They have scientists whose job it is to examine their paintings and their sculptures and figure out their chemical composition and how to take care of them, how best to conserve them, how best to make sure that they don't melt or they don't warp when they are in the museum's collection. I'm going to be talking with Chris McGlinchey, who is one of these conservation scientists at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. He just does really fascinating work. It's an extremely nerdy conversation. I'm warning you ahead of time. There's a lot of talk about tech and machinery that, frankly, I had to ask him to clarify exactly what sorts of things these machines did. But if you're into nerding out about art and science, this episode is very much for you. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Chris McGlinchey, and I'm the conservation scientist here at the Museum of Modern Art. What is conservation science exactly? Well, conservation science provides analytical resources to the museum conservators and curators for technical support. So what sorts of resources? What are you, what are you trying to find out about, say, paintings for them? So for um, curatorial scholarship, it might be what did this artist use and when did they use it? From a conservation perspective, the composition of those particular materials will influence the type of treatment they might carry out. And so finally, a knowledge base of what a particular object is composed of will influence what its Achilles heel is when it's exhibited in an environment or put in storage. And by that, I mean, is that particular object light sensitive? Is it vulnerable to extremes in temperature and humidity? Is it something that we have to isolate from vibration? All of this fundamentally um, goes back to what is it made out of? And you can look at something all you want, but one of the most impressive things about artists is that they have the capacity of making something look different from what it actually is. And so this is where analytical resources are very useful at getting to the fundamental composition of a particular material. And are you mostly analyzing paintings? Are you analyzing other sorts of works of art? What is coming across your desk? The scientific resources in the conservation department respond to the entire collection. So that's not just paintings, but it's um, sculpture, it's objects from the architecture and design department, it's photography, it's works mm -hmm. on paper, it's media and performance art. We have a responsibility to provide information on the entire spectrum of media represented here at the museum. What's the bulk of your work, though? I mean, I would guess that painting would be a lot of it because you, you look at paint, you don't necessarily know what minerals are in a color or, or something like that or what the exact medium was. But um, that's a naive guess at my end. You know, I really, um, to be fair to all of my colleagues in the various conservation disciplines, I try to balance my time out. And this goes for my colleague, Anna Martins, as well. I think we pretty much distribute ourselves evenly throughout the conservation sections. So just on my way over here, I was looking at a drawing, which happened to be a print on plywood. So there you have an example of something where my colleagues are working together. So it's not just a paper conservator that's knowledgeable in printing techniques, but it's a paintings conservator as well as an objects conservator who has more background on plywood. So um, given the collection here, you do have this non-traditional approach to making and fabricating art. 
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So it sounds like you're doing material science. That's sort of the... It's very much a material science is that your endeavor. Is that your training or what, what is your background as a scientist? Well, as a scientist, my background is in polymer science and engineering. Okay. And many of the materials in the collection, whether they are traditional like oil paintings or modern plastics, are polymeric in nature. So that's my academic background. But you brought up material science, and I think that's a good one. But I think it's actually almost a union um, between material science as well as the forensic sciences, because typically the, well, typically very common, most of the materials that we are attempting to characterize are extremely minute particles. So we're talking about just several micrograms of sample that we're, we're analyzing. As in just like a few bits of dust from a painting precisely. or something. That you're precisely. Because you want to do as little yeah. damage as yeah, you can. Yeah, exactly. Material scientists tend to examine um, materials in bulk, whereas conservation scientists examine very minute particles. That said, there are various analytical tools that are non-contact and non-destructive, don't require sampling. Um, you bring the equipment to the object and you can collect data and determine, for example, what the alloy composition is of a bronze, what the process ID is for a photograph, or what the elemental composition is of a painting. So um, that's a useful tool that is often a good starting point for an examination. I want to learn about the gear, definitely. Okay. Like I'm gonna, I, I want us to nerd out on the gear. But I'm curious, you were an engineer. What brought you to the art world? How did you end up in museum land? That was a very natural fit for me. Um, it, it's something that I've always been interested. I've always been interested as a kid in art, and I've always been interested in science. And when I was in college, studying chemistry and minoring in art history, my second semester undergrad, I registered for this course, the application of science and art. And so, I was quite young at the time and very lucky to have been exposed to that course. And I felt that this career was right for me. So it's pretty straightforward trajectory. Yeah. 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 Uh, As I, I, is it, so this is something that they actually offer in and, colleges and schools. Yeah. In some, yeah. and to some extent, I'm a very craft oriented person as a yeah. hobbyist. So what, what kind of hobbies? Well, I do woodworking. Oh, cool. Um, but I also dabble in some painting. Nice. What is your workspace like? Do you have a lab? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, so as I mentioned, some of our tools we bring to the art, and those are quite portable tools that don't require much lab space. But there are other instruments that are dedicated to a bench that are immobile, and that's kind of the conventional-looking laboratory. And we have several microscopes. We have an instrument called a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, which is very useful for characterizing various types of... What, is the, what does that do? A gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, um, as the gas chromatograph implies, um, 
well, I guess that name doesn't necessarily imply anything. <laughs> as um, we all, as all the listeners know, when, the, when you hear about a gas chromatograph, <laughs> well, it's 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 referred to as a separation science, okay. and it separates out molecules according to their size as well as their chemistry. And um, it's a very narrow, tiny column that runs typically like 30 meters long. It's inside this little oven. And at the end of that column, it just gets inserted into a mass spectrometer. And every split second, that mass spectrometer is characterizing the fragmentation pattern of what's coming off. And from that fragmentation pattern, you can determine precisely what that particular compound is. So when you're dealing with a mixture of organic components, you're separating all of those things out and characterizing them individually. And that's what allows us to determine and differentiate, say, linseed oil from poppy seed oil and linseed oil from alkyd um, very efficiently. And that's the kind of level of detail you need. You need to know each individual thing. Not all the time. The other instrument, which actually is probably our go-to instrument, is an infrared spectrometer. And that basically breaks things down according to their class. So by that, I mean we can differentiate the class of drying oils from alkyds, from acrylics, from epoxies, from urethanes. And, you know, about half the time, if not more, infrared spectroscopy is sufficient for the nature of the question, which might be of curatorial interest or it could be related to treatment. This space you're talking about, it, it sounds like a normal chemistry or university lab at some, or like visually. What it's a pretty small footprint. I would yeah, say, how big are we? I would say it's about 600 square feet. Okay, so we and, got like a, a large sized Manhattan studio or yeah, a small one bedroom. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a big open space and um, we just underwent a small renovation and gained a little extra space numerically, but is a vast improvement on the functionality of the lab. You have these tools that break down the materials or tell you what materials are. When I was speaking with Ani during our interview, she mentioned also that you guys have kind of imaging tools that show what's in the different layers of paint, correct? Sure, that's true. And um, going from the micro to the macro, if we have a tiny fragment of paint, what we can do is embed that in a resin, polish it on its face, and look at that under a microscope. And that enables us to see what the stratigraphy is. And so um, if we're fortunate enough to say get the ground preparation and priming layers and um, various layers of oil paint or whatever the particular paint medium is, we can see that stratigraphy and cross-section. That might be from top to bottom, say 500 microns thick. How big is like 500 microns thick? Like 500 a, microns that, is... <laughs> like, give me like, a, is there a metaphor oh, for that? Um, uh, no, it, there's, there's, uh, um, there's more than a metaphor. Um, yeah. 500 microns, I'm sorry, or, is or one, one half of a millimeter. Oh, okay. So very tiny. Yeah. Tiny. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the scale that you can look at. That might be the typical scale that we're looking at with some of these. Now, obviously, with some paintings, there might be a very heavy application of paint that may or may not be suitable for that approach. When do you usually start analyzing a piece of art? How does it come across your desk? Yeah, that's a... Uh, I like that question because it's an opportunity for me to speak about the experience of the conservator. And typically, we find that with the more seasoned conservators that have 
very refined, fully developed craft skills and a deep knowledge base of the materials common to conservation. They go about their work without me, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, I would say maybe somebody like Ani, who has this great depth of experience, might utilize scientific resources 15% of the time, whereas a young intern who's coming into the department for the first time might utilize the scientific resources, say, 50% of the time or 60% of the time. So science does not get involved with every single investigation or treatment or examination. We leave it up primarily to the judgment of the conservator. So what kind of a question will they come in and ask you? What's a, what's a, typical, what, what's a typical ask from a yeah. conservator? Let's say, for example, something comes into the collection from, say, you know, a private collector or a dealer. And if, let's say, for example, the object or painting is 75 years old and perhaps, say, 30 years ago, it was treated in a way that that, that restoration, which might only cover, say, 2 or 3% of the object, um, has discolored. And we don't have any records because it came from outside the museum. We just don't have any idea of what that particular material is. Mm. So a conservator will go to their palette of options that they will try at first. And if what they think should work isn't working, mm. that is when they call call in science to provide support. So, so they'll, they'll start sort of intuitively saying, I've seen a case like this before. Exactly. It, it's like a detective sort of doing exactly. their work. It's like, okay, I've, yeah. I've seen enough yeah. gun cases like this. I can work it out. And then exactly. maybe not they need forensics exactly. to come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, my first, second, and third choice of cleaning treatments is not effective here. I'm flummoxed. What do I do? And the answer is you get support from science to identify what the material is. So what would you start doing there? Like, is there a standard... Is there is there standard MO once something comes in for that for that situation, or is everyone kind of a little bit different? Well, it depends. But if it's say, for example, with something that's discolored and um, tenaciously bound to the paint film, my typical approach would be to sample that discolored material. I obviously have no compunction about sampling it because it's restoration that needs to come off anyway. How do you sample it? What do you use to like? I mean, you're at that point, you're almost like scraping a tiny bit of like varnish or something off. Yeah. How do you do that under? magnification. And I prefer to use this surgical scalpel that has a curved edge, um, not a pointy edge, as you might initially think would be the safest way. Why why do you use a a curved scalpel? What does that do for you? Because I can scrape more lightly across a smaller area. And my hand is quite steady. And it's I'm pretty pleased with what I'm able to take from the surface that's only visible under magnification. So there's a little bit of of surgical work going on here. You're gingerly removing a little bit of the sample. And would you also do that with, say, a paint from a a painting where you're trying to figure out what it was actually originally composed with? That can happen. Mm -hmm. That can happen. It Again, with some paintings, if the artist you know, use their paint and, you know, in a slightly sloppy manner where you can find it on the tacking edge or in the back of the canvas. We'll sample from there. But my sampling skills are such that I can sample a painting and there's no way you can see it, even under magnification sometimes. It's it's tricky. How long did it take you to learn how to do that? You know, I mean, this is like the craft aspect of, yeah. of me being interested in art making. I've 
I think it took me maybe a few years to get comfortable with the, and settling in on this particular scalpel that I use. Yeah, um, you had to go through some a few uh, a few candidates before you picked your tool. Well, you know, I thought I thought a very finely pointed tool would be the best way to go, and um, I was never really happy with with those results. Um, what I do use for a finely pointed tool is I make my own tungsten needles. Um, you make your own needles. Well, you use you use tungsten wire and you etch it to a very fine point, mm-hmm. and um, that is an incredibly fine point. And I'll use that for picking up samples and transferring them, say, from a microscope slide to one of my analytical tools. So you're doing a little bit of workshopping too for your totally yeah yeah cool. So you you sample a little bit of this varnish or paint. You yeah. you've lightly removed it so no one's going to notice. And then where yeah. where does it go? What what would you yeah. do at that point? Yeah. Well, then I'll I'll bring it into the the lab mm-hmm. and I just have a low power inspection microscope and mm-hmm. I'll just verify that I got what I was after because if I can't verify. I, I'm not happy with that sample. I'll go back and sample again. What does it mean to verify? What are you, what are you exactly verifying? There? Well, if I think I'm getting a varnish scraping, I'll look at that under transmitted light to make sure that it doesn't have pigment in it. Okay. If it has pigment, then that's part of a paint layer. I see. So, so you want to make sure you got exactly the material that you were trying to scrape off there. Precisely. And nothing more. Precisely. And so that's why you have to be so careful and work on such a small scale because, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is, these are pa- not even paper-thin layers of material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's often the case. So you, you verify that you got only the stuff that you went in to get, yeah. and then you start to analyze, I suppose. Yeah, and so that, that tool that I mentioned, that go-to tool, infrared spectroscopy, that is a microscope that we just mount the sample on. Mm-hmm. And um, there we use a diamond cell because diamond is transparent in IR. So we're able to look at the infrared absorption of that material and compare it to a database of known materials and and classify it that way. Mm-hmm. And it'll give you the basic it'll kind of give, category. Of- precisely. It'll give us the basic category. We can't go too far in interpreting that. But that information tells us something about the chemistry. And mm-hmm. if we're trying to get a handle on how do I dissolve this material without dissolving the actual art, we can then begin to contrast based on that molecular spectroscopy what differentiates the restoration from the original and then strategize an approach to removing the restoration without impacting the original. And I guess for listeners who may not have tuned into the last episode, we're talking about varnishes. That's that's like basically the protective layer that gets put on so many different paintings. So, and that's a lot of what the conservators are taking on and putting off and they're they're working with constantly. So that, that's, that's probably a big part of what comes, I imagine, through your, again, across your desk. Yeah, you know, you raise a great point. It's somewhat controversial whether or not varnishes are protective layers. First and foremost, they are optical models. Modifiers. Okay. And so they will enliven and enrich a surface. So make I, it a little shinier. Make it shinier, but but that's not when you're in the museum gallery setting, you're not appreciating the art from that glossy perspective. You're in the you're standing in the position where you actually see the diffuse reflection. And so that's where when you have a varnished surface the contrast between light and dark is greatest and the 
the depths of darks can be so rich and enriched by a varnish. Interesting. So it's like um, putting a contrast filter on the paper. Yeah. So the conservation community tries to to drill down with artists to understand why they want a varnish. It's true. I've met with artists who exclusively feel that varnishes are protective layers because from a pragmatic perspective, when they have their works going to galleries and dealers, quite often those works might be leaning against other works and they can get dinged. And it is easier for a conservator to treat a damaged varnish layer than it is to treat the actual paint layer. So it does confer some protection. But first and foremost, we like to remind people, whether they are visitors, artists, or curators, that a varnish film has a tremendous optical impact on the appearance of an object. That's interesting to me because oftentimes or at least Ani told me that oftentimes you're working with varnishes on very old paintings and trying to figure out what was used then and then also how to retreat them once they've been cleaned. I, but that also has an aesthetic impact on on an old, you know, impressionist masterpiece or something. Absolutely, absolutely. And the best example to give you is Matisse's Red Studio. And Ani was working on that painting, I think, about 15 years ago. And at some point, it was sprayed overall with a synthetic varnish resin. And 15 years ago, Ani was in the process of removing that synthetic varnish, um, something that Matisse definitely did not apply to that painting. You're telling me he didn't have a spray can on hand? He then? didn't have a... This was 1911, I believe. <laughs> he wasn't, um, he wasn't yeah, going at it with an aerosol? <laughs> no, he wasn't going at it with an aerosol. So as Ani was removing this synthetic layer, she found this natural resin varnish underneath and the really cool thing about the Red Studio is that Matisse selectively varnished that painting. And for those of you that don't know this particular painting, the Red Studio is, is a painting of Matisse's studio. So in it, he has depicted um, sculptures he was working on, paintings that he was working on. And the fascinating thing about this painting is the varnish does not cover any of the objects represented in the studio. It only was used to make his red walls look more saturated. So they have this, they've taken on this beautiful enamel-like effect in the walls, but yet the art is all matte because it's un, it was originally unvarnished. Interesting. Did you play a role in kind of understanding that? And figure, were you doing I did. analysis on that? I did. What kind of work were you doing exactly. on that painting? Exactly. So in that situation, Ani knew she, she had it in the files of what the synthetic resin was. She knew what was, you know, what the best approach was. She didn't need me for that step of her treatment. However... As she was working across the painting, she was encountering these regions where they had a particular gloss to it. So that's where I sampled it. And I sampled that particular material, and it turned out to be a traditional natural resin that we know Matisse used. So, um, And given, given the nature of how the varnish was selectively applied— we're just highly confident that this was a conscious choice of Matisse's. Now, did that discovery, you know, figuring out what that material in the painting was and, and how it changed your appearance, change the way you guys care for it or change the way it, it's kind of talked about academically in some ways? Or Yes to all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, 
How we care for it, generally traditional natural varnish resins are not the most light-stable materials. So we are now very careful about the light levels that painting is exposed to. That natural resin is quite brittle. So, well, it's it's not that we expose our objects to high like levels of vibration or anything yeah. of that sort. Um, You're not putting it on a train car in the sun. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, no, the main our, our main concern about that painting with this new information is the light exposure, and that changes the w- way you you store it and preserve it and or display it. Exactly, exactly. And from a scholarship perspective, the fact that Matisse selectively varnished is of great interest. See, yeah, we're, we're sitting here nerding out about a transparent layer of material that, like, to me this is fascinating because it's like it's something so subtle can change your understanding of how a painting is made it and why it gives the viewer the impression that it does. And it's something that most people wouldn't even realize is like there. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about it, if the scientific resources weren't there, where we we didn't have the tools to confirm that this is a natural resin, it would remain a question mark and people would continue to just scratch their heads and it would be ambiguous. Mm. So it's a great example of the role science can play in a fine art museum. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Most of the time you're getting questions from the conservators, but you also are getting questions from the curators too, right? Yeah. What do those consist of usually? Well, what kind of things are they coming to you to find out about? Well, one question, um, as far as paint is concerned, is this a traditional artist paint squeezed out of a tube? Or was this a you know, consumer paint purchased from a hardware store. That might be one one type of question. Why is that kind of question important? Well, it has it may have to do with um, a particular belief system of the artists, perhaps wanting to eschew tradition mm. and strike out on their own. So they'll have a historical question and they'll come to you to try to confirm their hunch or yeah. understand where things yeah. are going. Yeah. And, and one thing I like to do when questions like that arise is I try to help calibrate. Um, this sounds rather arrogant for me to say this, but I, I try to calibrate a curator's eye is to help them differentiate what makes a artist material different from, say, a house paint. And if you think about it for a moment, um, paint that you squeeze out of a tube is very viscous. Mm -hmm. And so when that gets worked, it frequently will retain the brushwork. And you'll see that as evidence when you look at the paint film. Whereas with paint developed for consumers... The, the paint formulation approach there is for brush strokes to disappear. And also commercially prepared paint was typically designed to conceal the surface underneath. So it tends to have excellent hiding properties. Whereas artists paint, there's a spectrum of 
opacity and transparency with artists' paint. So I think when you have that basic information, it helps refine some of your questions. It's not to say that visual assessment is sufficient, but it does help guide the question and where one might actually begin to initiate their examination. So you're, you're being a science teacher part-time. 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 Yep. Substitute science teacher yep. once in a while. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet the curators enjoy that, though. I bet they, they like learning. About, I, I, if, I mean, they're, they're, they're art nerds. So I'm sure that's the kind of thing they, they would they love to learn about. Well, you know, some do and some don't. But okay. obviously, <laughs> in, um, you know, art history degrees don't have science as a prerequisite. Yeah. So some have a comfort with science and technology and others don't. And it's it's fine. As an art history scientist, I mean, you know, uh, like, do you think art, art historians should have a science background? Do you think it would help them? Um, in some instances, it would help, yeah. but I think in those instances, what would suffice is a comfort in having a dialogue with a scientist. Yeah, how to talk to scientists. How to talk 101. to scientists, and um, you know, to share that burden, I need to know how to have a conversation with curators. If there are any academics listening to to this episode right now, I hope you're getting curriculum ideas from <laughs> maybe one person. Um, you mentioned that art sometimes has a, a Achilles heel when it comes to conserving or preserving it. What kind of stuff can go wrong? Like, what, what's an example of an Achilles heel? Well, by that I mean what environmental factors are potentially hazardous to the condition of an object. And so this largely falls under the rubric of what we call preventive conservation and how do we prevent change from from happening and that may be as i said earlier limiting light levels narrowing the temperature and humidity range in which things fluctuate preferring low humidity to high humidity and therein lies the rub some particular objects are composed of a multitude of components that have kind of conflicting ideal conditions. And so when you have this inherent vice, that is a good example of something that just has an Achilles heel because there's really no ideal condition that can be optimized for the bulk of that object. What, you have to strike a balance. Uh, can you think of a, a particularly... Uh, nettlesome object that you've had to deal with, one that was sort of had all those contradictions? And... Well, I can't think of anything specific, but I've seen this on occasion where, for example, you have um, you know, tanned leather with you know, like a zipper next to it or a metal button, and you'll see corrosion at that interface. And that's where you would, you know, ideally the leather should be stored at a slightly elevated humidity and the metal, in that case, you'd want at a low humidity. So and you have to pick one. And you have to kind of pick the happiest median. And uh, just go with it. Exactly. What is the most technically challenging sort of analysis you have to do at the museum? Oh, hmm. Well, it's the analysis that hasn't been done before. Okay. <laughs> And um, here at the Museum of Modern Art, we have a lot of that. Okay. So one example of something that I had no experience in was providing technical support to a performance art 
installation piece that was by Tanya Bruguera, this artist activist. She created this installation site in um, Havana that was um, very controversial and shut down shortly after it was open. And so this installation of hers never really had its full run. And what this installation consists of is it was first performed in a military bunker in Havana. And in that bunker, um, which roughly the footprint of that bunker, at least it was recreated at MoMA, was about 150 feet long and maybe about 40 feet wide. It was in total darkness except for the fact that in the middle there was a monitor hung from the ceiling showing pictures of Fidel Castro on vacation. (laughs) And on the floor was 40 cubic yards of sugarcane. Okay. And the issue was this sugarcane is going to rot quickly. And how do we prevent that from happening? And People were suggesting, you know, fungicides, mildewcides. And working with the exhibition and design team, luckily one of their members knew of this working farm museum in Florida that harvested sugarcane. And we did some tests, and what we ended up doing was desiccating the sugarcane shortly after it was harvested and then having it shipped to MoMA. And that process of desiccating the sugarcane enabled the sugarcane to last much longer. It was a short-run exhibition. I think it was less than nine weeks, and it went off really well. Through the power of science, you figured out a way to prevent a giant heap of rotting sugarcane from putrefying. Yeah, and this is not something you really want in the museum environment. No. Um, Yeah, my colleagues at other institutions don't really have to deal with questions like this so often. Not many agricultural issues coming up at the Met. Yeah. Yeah. But to round out that piece, the performative aspect of it was not just the monitor, but there were four nude men that were standing in the space performing various like acts of flagellation and suffering mm. um, surrounding the monitor of Fidel enjoying himself. With the sugar cane. With the sugar cane. Yeah. So if you, if you have a bunch of people beating themselves, you at least yeah. want the room yeah. to not smell yeah. like rot. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is there ever a time you get a piece of art and... You guys think it's made of one thing, and it turns out you do an analysis, and it's just totally different. Like, everyone had it wrong. I'm sure the answer to that is yes, but I can't (laughs) think of anything at the moment. But one thing, um, perhaps one response to that, is the issue of photograph process ID. So Mm -hmm. photographers throughout the history of photography have worked in a variety of processes. You might be familiar with the most common one, um, Mm -hmm. gelatin silver print. But there's also platinum printing, platinum palladium, palladium, uranium. Um, Uranium? Uranium. Yeah, it's not so common, but... um, (laughs) Sounds cancerous. mm, No, actually, the radiation emitted is quite low. Uh, It's minimal. uh, Not common these days. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, orange fiesta wear is more radioactive than (laughs) uranium prints. But anyway, so regarding that, some photographers had the capacity to kind of push the appearance of these photographs and make one look like another. And I'm speaking Mm -hmm. very generally. Mm -hmm. So 
with elemental analysis, we can say it's a platinum print mm-hmm. or even though it looks like a platinum print, it's a palladium print. And that's rather significant because prior to World War I, platinum was most common. And then with World War I, the cost of platinum skyrocketed and there was a shift in technology towards first towards platinum palladium blends and then pure palladium blends Mm. and so when you have the resources to differentiate all of those materials you're providing a lot of useful information what does that help the conservators do how does that change their their job once they know that information it's almost of greater curatorial scholarship because with that particular example, it tells us when the photograph was printed. Oh, interesting. Or it may tell us when the photograph was was printed. And when I spoke with Sarah Meister for our interview, she kind of talked about how we don't always know that. We often, with photographs, sometimes they're coming out of a box somewhere. Exactly. So it's almost like a version of carbon dating in a way, or like that's... It's a little bit. Yeah. It's a little bit like that. It's not a native thing. We're just relying on kind of the, the evolution of the history of photographic processing technology. So if an unknown comes out of a box and we have reasonable confidence to believe that, you know, this could be early 20th century and no reason to doubt this, doing the elemental analysis and saying that it's pure platinum would be quite exciting. So it's another clue you can collect about the history and provenance and life of this piece of art. Correct. When you're doing imaging on a painting, right? When you're looking through the layers. Have you ever found something really surprising beneath a layer of paint that you just didn't expect to find there? Sure. Um, Robert Rauschenberg's Asheville Citizen. It is largely a painting with a black tarry substance applied to it with newsprint on the surface as well. It's, It's two separate canvases. And when we did imaging, when we took an x-ray of that image, um, we found under each canvas two separate portraits. And it had nothing to do with the final image. And it's entirely plausible that these were just canvases that he got from a studio and have nothing to do with his hand. Or they could be. They could be they his could rough be. draft. They could be. You have they no could idea. Be. Yeah, it's a subject of future investigations. It, and it's quite, It's it was really um, quite amazing. Sometimes you can you can do this image of a painting and find an unexpected face staring back at you. Yeah, exactly. Do you find things about previous drafts that painters did sometimes? Absolutely. Like, like Absolutely. What, what, yeah. what kind of stuff were you like? Well, it's just maybe about repositioning of an elbow or suddenly this sitter is holding, say, a basket of fruit as opposed to having their hands at their side. You know, imaging methods will help clarify that. And that kind of, again, contributes to like the history of how the painting was made. And you, exactly. You get to learn more about the artist's process. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget. 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. How long have you been doing this for? I've been at the museum for nearly 20 years. How has the science changed? The science has changed, well, prior to working here, I worked at the Met as a scientist in paintings conservation. And there I was about 15 years. So at the start of my career, typically the samples had to be a little bit larger. I I would say there are several gains, actually. And one of them being the advancement of imaging tools um, being quite advanced these days. We can now construct, I spoke earlier about process ID for photographs. Um, providing elemental information, we can now provide tiny spot-by-spot analysis, so sub-millimeter scale elemental mapping of an entire area. And that enables us to see, say, you know, how an artist used cadmium yellow or you know, umber or lead white or vermilion. So you can get this entire map and show where this particular pigment occurs across an entire canvas. Even where you can't see it or with the naked eye. Yeah, in most cases, yes. There are not to get too nerdy. No, no, please go ahead. Um, it's, it's if you have elements that are radio opaque, they can conceal radio transparent elements underneath. So you have to be a little bit careful as you interpret the data. But generally, this tool goes far beyond what your eye can see. So you can get that minute map of each little spot of pigment on the and, and what exactly it is. And does I mean, does that level of detail change the way these paintings are cared for? Mm, not so much. Again, it's of more kind of curatorial scholarship to say, They knew exactly what they were doing. They were decisive. They were content. And that stroke is a stroke. Or um, they really needed to make adjustments to this figure, tighten this one area up, or relax that particular area. So it helps reconstruct the artist's process. Yeah. And sometimes if you have corrections underneath that, say, are particularly medium rich, they could cause the layers on top to degrade a certain way that's different from adjacencies. So how to integrate that is something a conservator will will decide so that alteration is pushed back a little bit so that when you're actually looking at the painting, um, those changes don't jump out and serve as a distraction. Yeah, it's like it just mapping has gotten so much more advanced. It sounds like it's like you, you we've, we've now gone from sort of like hand drawn maps where someone was surveying out in the Amazon to like actual satellite imaging where you can get down to the little minute details. Yeah, of. yeah, yeah. That's that's a good analogy. <laughs> that's that's really fascinating. Are there any techniques or tools? of the trade that have kind of gone out of favor over time because maybe they weren't great for the art or just in general? You know, I don't, um, I mean, this is a good place to kind of wrap up because I don't have a specific answer to your question, but I want to bring it back to the beginning of our conversation where I was talking about 
the scientific resources to inform treatments. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there are untreatable paintings and um, there might not be, say, an adhesive that would work for a particular instance or mm. there might not be a varnish that would stick to that surface like that and be reversible. So one aspect of um, science is the research and development of conservation materials and um, that type of R&D produces new products for conservators to either treat untreatable works of art or treat works of art more safely. And do you ever do that kind of R&D yourself? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. I've been involved with colleagues in Europe and in Washington and Buffalo on um, the development of um, adhesives for flaking paint. Which is, I imagine that's got to be a constant problem in museums. That's got to be like a, a perennial. It can be an issue. Yeah. It can be an <laughs> issue. Yeah, yeah. And generally, you don't care so much about the, say, optical appearance of an adhesive when you're laying down a paint flake because it's concealed, that adhesive is concealed by the paint flake. But sometimes you have to work more globally and don't necessarily have that luxury. And in that case, that's when it becomes necessary to have a light-stable adhesive that doesn't discolor and isn't yellow from the get-go. Interesting. And, and just, again, for people who are visualizing this, we're talking about, like, an old master. Might, maybe a bit of paint has come off, and you're literally gluing it back on with an adhesive, getting it right yeah. back into place. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned old master. And um, so to contrast my experience from the beginning of my career that began at the Met mm -hmm. and um, then transitioned over to MoMA, one thing I did was um, when I first arrived at MoMA, I did um, just some basic examination of collection statistics and found, for example, with the paintings in the collection, the vast majority of them are oil paint. And I mean, that tells us that artists are, you know, tend to use these traditional materials. And so what I really began to appreciate is that change is greatest for things that are young. And so what I mean by that is it takes a long time for oil paint to dry. And um, yeah, sure, oil paint can be dry to the touch in a few days. But still, if you get close to it, you can smell that, you know, oil paint smell. Yeah. And that's telling you that something is evaporating away. And that that process, I've actually gotten into discussions with colleagues about how long does that process take. Yeah. And um, some have suggested 50 years and others have suggested 75 years. Oh, wow. And so the interesting thing about that is for the initial stages, for the initial, the early decades of an oil painting, it's quite flexible. And the reason for that is it has these um, components that have not completely evaporated away but are functioning as plasticizers. And old masters have lost those plasticizers. And that's why paintings hundreds of years old are significantly harder. I don't want to say brittle, but they're harder and not as soft as a painting that's just 20 or 30 years so old. So that's why they're more likely to chip rather than maybe drip or smudge a little exactly, bit. Exactly, exactly. And one of the issues there is that... 
with these more plastic-like films, um, they are more sensitive to treatment. So that's why paintings conservators of modern and contemporary art have to be savvy to those intrinsic qualities. Because you're treating something still a child. It's still gr- it's still growing it, in a way. It's still growing. Yeah. It's amazing that they have like this 50-year adolescence. Yeah, of... yeah, yeah. Last question. What is your favorite piece of art at MoMA? <laughs> um, that's like asking a parent who their favorite child is. Yeah, but everyone um, has one. So. I have over 200,000 favorite <laughs> objects okay. in the collection. Um, no. Um, okay. Well, I think one work that, and maybe resonate is, is a good word for this, is Janet Cardiff's 40-part motet. Um, what, and what is that? It's an installation of speakers. It's a sound installation. And it's based on Thomas Tallis's music from the 16th century. Okay. And it's just, I, I love early music. Yeah. And it's, this is a contemporary interpretation of that. And it's just a, it's a beautiful space. And it's on exhibition now? I don't think so. Oh, unfortunate. Sorry. It's okay. One day, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. This was really fun chatting. Happy to talk to you. And that's it for this week's episode of Working. As always, hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, send us an email at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. And a special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. Catch us next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.